Welcome, everyone, to episode 61 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another wild story for you guys today. This is the murder of Travis Alexander by Jody Ann Arias. No long intro today, so let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Travis Alexander was born on July 28, 1977, in Riverside, California, to Gary and Pamela Alexander. At the age of 11, Travis moved in with his paternal grandparents after his father's death in July of 97. His seven siblings were also taken in by their grandmother. Alexander was a salesman and a motivational speaker for prepaid legal services. Jody Ann Arias was born on July 9, 1980, in Salinas, California, to William and Sandra Arias. Arias and Alexander met in September of 2006 at a PPL conference in Las Vegas. Arias converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of which Alexander was a member, and was baptized by him on November 26, 2006, in a ceremony in Southern California. Alexander and Jody began dating in February of 2007. Arias moved to Mesa to live closer to Alexander. In April of 2008, she moved to Yurka, California and lived there with her grandparents. Travis and Jody dated intermittently for a year and a half, often in a long-distance relationship, both taking turns traveling between their respective Arizona and California homes. Travis's friends, who knew Jody and observed them together, tended to have a negative opinion of her, stating that their relationship was unusually tumultuous and that Jody's behavior was worrying. Travis was murdered on Wednesday, June 4, 2008. He suffered 27 stab wounds, a slit throat, and a gunshot wound to the head. The medical examiner would later testify that Alexander's jugular vein common carotid artery and trachea had been slashed and that he had defensive wounds on his hands. He further testified that Travis may have been dead at the time of the gunshot was inflicted and that the back wounds were shallow. Alexander's death was ruled a homicide. 
he was buried at the Riverside Olive Wood Memorial Park Cemetery. In early 2008, Alexander told acquaintances that Jody would join him for a work-related trip to Cancun, Mexico, scheduled for June 15th. In April, Alexander asked to change his travel companion to another female friend, Marie Hall. On May 28th, a burglary occurred at the residence of Jody's grandparents, with whom Arias was living. Among the missing objects was a handgun chambered in a 25 caliber, which was never recovered. This later became significant as a shell case from a spent 25 caliber round was found near Alexander's body at the murder scene. On June 2nd, between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., Arias called Alexander four times, but did not appear to reach him, as the longest of the call's duration was 17 seconds. At 3 a.m., Alexander called Arias twice, the first time for 18 minutes, the second time for 41 minutes. At 4.03 a.m., Arias called Alexander again, and the call lasted 2 minutes and 48 seconds. Neither of these calls nor their transcripts were presented in Arias's trial. At 5.39 a.m., Arias drove south to rent a car for a long trip to Utah, as evidenced by a gasoline purchase in Yurka. On June 2nd, at 8.04 a.m., Arias rented a car in Redding, California, and indicated that she would return the car to the same location. She visited friends in the southern in Southern California on her way to Utah for a PPL work conference and to meet with Ryan Burns, a PPL co-worker. By late evening on June 3rd, she had apparently set out for Salt Lake City. Jody missed an important conference call on the evening of June 4th. The following day, she met Ryan Burns in the Salt Lake City suburb of West Jordan and attended business meetings for the conference. Burns later said that he noticed that Arias's formerly blonde hair was now dark brown and she had cuts on her hands. On June 6th, she left Salt Lake City and drove west toward California. She called Alexander several times and left several voicemail messages for him. She also accessed his cell phone voicemail system. When Arias returned the car on June 7th, it had been driven about 2,800 miles. The rental clerk testified that the car was missing its floor mats and had red stains on its front and rear seats. However, it cannot be verified that the car had floor mats when Arias had picked it up, and the red stains could not be analyzed as the car was clean before the police could examine it. On June 9th, having been unable to reach Alexander, a concerned group of friends went to his home. His roommates had not seen him for several days but they believed that he was out of town and thus did not suspect that anything was amiss. After finding a key to his bedroom, the group entered and found large pools of blood in the hallway to the master bedroom and Alexander's body in the shower. In the 911 call, the dispatcher asked whether Alexander had been suicidal or if anyone was angry enough to hurt him. Alexander's friends mentioned Arias by name as a possible suspect, stating, that Travis had told them that she had been stalking him, accessing his Facebook account, and slashing his car's tires. While searching Travis's home, the police found his recently purchased digital camera damaged in the washing machine. 
The police were able to recover deleted images showing Jody and Alexander in sexually suggestive poses taken at approximately 1.40 p.m. on June 4th. The final photograph of Travis alive, showing him in the shower, was taken at 5.29 p.m. that day. Photos taken moments later show an individual believed to be Travis's profusely bleeding on the bathroom floor. A bloody palm print was discovered along the wall in the bathroom hallway, and it contained DNA from both Arias and Alexander. On July 9, 2008, Jody was indicted by a grand jury in Arizona for the first-degree murder of Travis Alexander. She was arrested at her home six days later and was extradited to Arizona on September 5th. She pled not guilty on September 11th. During this time, she provided several different accounts about her involvement in Travis's death. She first told police that she had not been in Mesa on the day of the murder and had last seen Travis in March 2008. Jody later told the police that two intruders had broken into his home, murdering him and attacking her. Two years after her arrest, she told the police that she killed Alexander in self-defense claiming that she had been a victim of domestic violence. On April 6, 2009, a motion to reconsider the defendant's motion to disqualify the Maricopa County District Attorney's Office was denied. On May 18th, the court ordered Jody to submit to IQ and competency testing. In January 2011, a defense filing detailed Jody's attorney's efforts to obtain text messages and emails. The prosecution initially told defense attorneys that no text messages that had been sent or received by Travis were available, but the prosecution was in order to turn over several hundred such messages. Mesa Police Detective Esteban Flores told defense attorneys that there was nothing out of the ordinary among Travis's emails. About 8,000 were turned over to the defense in June of 2009. In opening arguments on January 2, 2013, Martinez sought the death penalty. Jody was represented by appointed counsel L. Kirk Nermy and Jennifer Wilmot, who argued that Travis's death was a justifiable homicide committed in self-defense. Ryan Burns testified that when Jody visited him in Utah, the two had spent several hours hugging and kissing on a large beanbag chair. She told him that she had cut her hands on broken glass while working at a restaurant called Margaritaville. A detective testified that no restaurant by that name had ever existed in the Yurka area. At the time, Jody was working at a restaurant called Casa Ramos. Ramos. Jody later testified that after she cut her finger, I had a bazillion margaritas to make. Later, the prosecution argued that the presence of a 25 caliber round found near Travis's body and the theft of a handgun of the same caliber from Jody's residence in Yerka the previous week proved that she had staged the burglary and used the gun to kill Travis. Martinez claimed that Jody had stalked Travis and had slashed his tires twice. In the final days before his death, Travis called her a sociopath and the worst thing that ever happened to me, and stated that he was afraid of her. 
Jody took the stand in her own defense on February 4th, 2013, testifying for a total of 18 days, a duration described by criminal defense attorney Mark Gregos as unprecedented. On the first day of her testimony, Jody told of being violently abused by her parents from the age of seven. She testified that she had rented a car in Reading because Budget's website provided two options, one to the north and one to the south, and her brother lived in Reading. On her second day on the stand, Jody said that her relationship with Travis included oral sex and sodomy. She said that the sodomy was painful the first time she experienced it, and that Travis believed that such activities would not contravene Mormon rules concerning vaginal intercourse. Jody said that she and Alexander eventually had intercourse, but less often. A phone sex tape was played in court that Jody had recorded without Travis's knowledge, apparently hoping to use it to embarrass him to his Mormon peers. Jody also testified that Travis secretly harbored pedophilic desires for both male and female children, and that she tried to help him with these urges. Forensics experts testified that an examination of Alexander's computer found no evidence of pornographic material. Jody testified that her relationship with Travis became increasingly physically and emotionally abusive. She said that Travis shook her while saying, I'm fucking sick of you, then began screaming at me, after which he body slammed me on the floor at the foot of his bed and taunted her saying, don't act like that hurts, before he called her a bitch and kicked her in the ribs. Jody said that he went to kick me again and I put my hand up. She held up her left hand in the courtroom, showing that her ring finger was crooked. She then claimed that she killed Travis in self-defense after he had attacked her when she dropped his camera, forcing her to fight for her life. This was Jody's third different account of the events leading to Alexander's death, which prosecutors, courtroom observers, and jurors felt severely damaged her credibility. Rebuttal witnesses called by the prosecution included several of Travis's other girlfriends, who stated that he never exhibited any problems with anger or violence. During the trial, Videotape of a September 2008 Inside Edition interview was played in which Jody had said, No jury is going to convict me, because I am innocent. You can mark my words on that. Discussing the statement during her testimony, she said, At the time, I had plans to commit suicide, so I was extremely confident that no, no jury would convict me, because I didn't expect any of you to be here. At the close of his cross-examination of Jody, Martinez replayed the video and prompted her to affirm that she had said during the interview that she would not be convicted because she was innocent. When being questioned by Martinez, Jody was initially combative and flippant, but after several days, Martinez highlighted the possible lies and inconsistencies in her testimony and she admitted to stabbing and shooting Travis despite her earlier claims of a memory lapse. Jury foreman William Zverkos later expressed an opinion common to jurors and observers when he told ABC's Good Morning America, I think 18 days hurt her. I think she was not a good witness. Beginning on March 14th, psychologist Richard Samuels testified for the defense for nearly six days. 
He said that Jody had likely been suffering from acute stress at the time of the murder, sending her body into a fight-or-flight mode to defend herself, which caused her brain to stop retaining memory. In response to a juror's question, asking whether this scenario could occur, even if this was a premeditated murder, as a prosecution contended, he responded, Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. Samuels also diagnosed Jody with post-traumatic stress disorder. Martinez attacked Samuels' credibility, accusing him of bias and having formed a relationship with Jody. Samuels had previously testified that he had compassion for Jody. Beginning on March 26, Alice LaViolette, a psychotherapist who specializes in domestic violence, testified that Jody was a victim of domestic abuse and that most victims do not tell anyone because they feel ashamed and humiliated. She also summarized emails from Travis's close friends. They have basically advised Miss Arias to move on from the relationship, that Mr. Alexander had been abusive to women. The jury posed nearly 160 questions to her, many of them focusing on Jody's credibility. Clinical psychologist Janine DeMarte testified for the prosecution, stating that she found no evidence that Travis had abused Jody, and no evidence of PTSD or amnesia in her. Furthermore, the total memory loss for long stretches of time that Jody claimed to have experienced is inconsistent with traumatic amnesia associated with PTSD, which manifests as much shorter gaps in memory. Instead, she said that Jody suffered from borderline personality disorder, showing signs of immaturity and an unstable sense of identity. People who suffer from such a disorder have a terrified feeling of being abandoned by others, she told the jurors. The final defense witness was psychologist Robert Geffner, who said that DeMarte's borderline diagnosis was, quote, not appropriate and that all tests taken by Jody since her arrest pointed toward an anxiety disorder stemming from trauma. He also said that the tests indicated that she had answered questions honestly. The state recalled Horn, who testified further on the gunshot wound, and called forensic neuropsychologist Jill Hayes, who disputed Gefter's testimony that the MMPI test was not geared toward diagnosing borderline personality disorder. Responding to Jody's testimony about buying a five-gallon gas can at a Walmart store in Salinas on June 3, 2008, that she returned on the same day, on April 24th, the prosecution called Amanda Webb, a Salinas Walmart store employee, to the stand. Webb said that according to Walmart's records, no one had returned a five-gallon gas can on that date, and that Jody returned the gas can one week after having purchased it. The gas can evidence was seen as an important in establishing premeditation, as the prosecutor argued that Jody was trying to avoid being recorded on gas station security cameras as she drove to Mesa. In closing arguments on May 4th, Jody's defense argued that the premeditation theory did not make sense. What happened in that moment in time? The relationship, the relationship of chaos that ended in chaos as well. There is nothing about what happened on June 4th in that bathroom that looks planned. 
couldn't it also be that after everything that they went through in that relationship, that she simply snapped? Ultimately, if Miss Rice is guilty of any crime at all, it is a crime of manslaughter and nothing more. In rebuttal, Martinez described the extent and variety of Alexander's wounds. There is no evidence that he ever laid a hand on her. Ever. Nothing indicates that this is anything less than a slaughter. There was no way to appease this woman who just wouldn't leave him alone. Jody's testimony added to a very long defense portion of the guilt phase of the trial, which led to problems with retention of jury members. On April 3rd, a jury member was dismissed for misconduct. The defense asked for a mistrial, which the judge denied. On April 12th, another juror was excused for health reasons. A third juror was dismissed on April 25th after being arrested for a DUI. By April 25th, excuse me, by April 25th, defense costs had reached almost $1.7 million. On May 7th, 2013, after 15 hours of deliberation, Jody was found guilty of first-degree murder. All 12 jurors found her guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, of which seven additionally found her guilty of felony murder. As a verdict was read, Alexander's family smiled and hugged one another. Crowds outside the courtroom began cheering and chanting. The penalty phase began on May 16, 2013, when prosecutors called in Travis's family members to offer victim impact statements in an effort to convince the jury that Jody's crime merited a death sentence. On May 21st, Jody offered an allocution during which she pled for a life sentence. She acknowledged that her plea for life was a reversal of remarks that she had made to a television reporter shortly after her conviction, in which she had said that she preferred the death penalty. Each time I said that, I meant it, but I lacked perspective, she said. Until very recently, I could not imagine standing before you and asking you to give me life. She said that she changed her mind to avoid bringing more pain to members of her family who were in the courtroom. At one point, Jody held up a white t-shirt with the word survivor written across it, telling the jurors that she would sell the clothing and donate all proceeds to victims of domestic abuse. She also said that she would donate her hair to Locks of Love while in prison, and had already done so three times while in jail. That evening, in a joint jailhouse interview with the Arizona Republic, KPNX-TV, and NBC's Today, Jody said that she did not know whether the jury would decide on life or death. Whatever they come back with, I will have to deal with it. I have no other choice. Regarding the verdict, she said, It felt like a huge sense of unreality. I felt betrayed, actually, by the jury. I was hoping they would see things for what they are. I felt really awful for my family and what they were thinking. On May 23rd, the sentencing phase of Jody's trial resulted in a hung jury, prompting the judge to declare a mistrial for that phase. The jury had reached an 8-4 decision in favor of the death penalty. After the jury was discharged, jury foreman Gervacos stated, 
that the jury found the responsibility of weighing the death sentence overwhelming, but were horrified when their efforts ended in a mistrial. By the end of it, we were mentally and emotionally exhausted, he said. I think we were horrified when we found that they had actually called a mistrial, and we felt like we had failed. On May 30th, Maricopa County Attorney Bill Montgomery discussed the next steps at a news conference. He said that he was confident that an impartial jury could be seated, but that it was possible that lawyers and the victim's family could agree to scrap the trial in favor of a life sentence with no parole. Jody had said, I don't think that there is an untainted jury pool anywhere in the world right now. That's what it feels like, but I still believe in the system to a degree, so we'll just go through that if that happens. Defense attorneys responded, if the diagnosis made by the state psychologist is correct, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office is seeking to impose the death penalty upon a mentally ill woman who has no prior criminal history. It is not incumbent upon Ms. Arias' defense counsel to resolve this case. During the trial, defense attorneys filed for mistrial in January, April, and May of 2013. Jody's lawyers argued in January that Esteban Flores, the lead Mesa police detective on the case, perjured himself during a 2009 pretrial hearing aimed at determining whether the death penalty should be considered an option for jurors. Flores testified at the 2009 hearing that based on his own review of the crime scene and a discussion with the medical examiner, it was apparent that Travis had been shot in the forehead first. Contrary to Flores' testimony at the 2009 hearing, the medical examiner told jurors the gunshot probably would have incapacitated Alexander, giving his extensive defense wounds, including stab marks and slashes to his hands, arms, and legs. It was not likely that the shot came first. Flores denied perjury and said during his trial testimony that he just misunderstood what the medical examiner had told him. In April, the defense claimed that the prosecutor had acted inappropriately and said that the case resembled a modern-day equivalent to the Salem Witch Trials. In the motion, the defense team contended the pro prosecutorial misconduct had infested these proceedings with a level of un unfairness that cannot be cured by any other means. The motion also stated that there is a circus-like atmosphere inside the courtroom and that Martinez had yelled at witnesses, attacked witnesses on a personal level, and had thrown evidence. The motion also alleged that Martinez chose to release evidence and to pose for pictures with his fans on the steps of the courthouse. The attorneys claimed Jody was in a position in which she could not present a complete defense and that the only constitutional course was to declare a mistrial. On May 20, 2013, defense attorneys filed a motion which alleged that a defense witness who had been due to testify the preceding Friday, the 17th, began receiving death threats for her scheduled testimony on Jody's behalf. The day before the filing, the witness contacted counsel for Jody, stating that she was no longer willing to testify because of these threats. The motion continued, it should also be noted that these threats follow those made to Alice LaViolette, 
a record of which was made ex parte and under seal. The motion was denied, as was a motion for a stay in the proceedings that had been sought to give time to appeal the decisions to the Arizona Supreme Court. On May 29, 2013, the Arizona Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal filed three months earlier, which was also refused by the mid-level Arizona Court of Appeals. Nurmi had asked the High Court to throw out the aggravating factor of cruelty because the judge had allowed it to go forward based on a different theory of how the murder occurred. The lead detective originally claimed that the gunshot occurred first, followed by the stabbing and slitting of the throat. Based on that theory, Stevens ruled that there was a probable cause to find the crime had been committed in an especially cruel manner, an aggravating factor under state law. Subsequent to this initial hearing, the medical examiner testified that the gunshot occurred post-mortem. On July 6, 2018, Jody's current attorneys, Margaret M. Green and Corey Engel, filed a 324-page appeal seeking her murder conviction be overturned to the Court of Appeals. On October 17, 2019, Jody's attorney argued that the Court of Appeals that her sentence should be overturned on the basis that Martinez acted inappropriately throughout the trial, resulting in a media frenzy and affecting the outcome of the trial. On March 24, 2020, the court that held the notwithstanding egregious and self-promoting misconduct by the prosecutor, Jody had been convicted based upon the overwhelming evidence of her guilt and upheld the conviction. On October 21, 2014, Jody's sentencing retrial began. Opening statements were given and a hearing on evidence was held. Prosecution witness Amanda Webb called in the first trial to rebut Jody's testimony that she had returned a gas can to Walmart on May 8, 2007, admitted that she did not know if all records were transferred after the store relocated. After a holiday break, the retrial resumed in January of 2015. Mesa police experts admitted that Travis's laptop had viruses and pornography, contrary to testimony in the first trial in 2013. Jury deliberations began on February 12, 2015. On March 2, 2015, the jury informed Judge Stevens that they were deadlocked. Jody's attorneys requested a mistrial. Stevens denied the request, read additional instructions to the jury, and ordered them to resume deliberations. On March 5, 2015, Stevens declared a mistrial because the jurors, who deliberated for about 26 hours over five days, deadlocked at 11 to 1 vote in favor of the death penalty. The 11 jurors in favor of the death penalty indicated that the sole holdout juror was sympathetic to Jody and had an agenda. Sentencing was scheduled for April 7, 2015, with Stevens having the option to sentence Jody to either life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or with the possibility of parole after 25 years. On April 13, Stevens sentenced Jody to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. By March 5, 2015, the total trial cost was an estimated $3 million. In an interview on April 8, 2015, 
Jody's attorney, attorney Jennifer Wilmot, discussed the social media furor, death threats she received, Jody's statements at the sentencing, the holdout juror, and stated that she believed that Jody testified truthfully. In June 2015, following a restitution hearing, Jody was ordered to pay more than $32,000 to Travis's siblings. Her attorney stated this was about one-third of the amount requested. As of 2023, Jody is housed at the Arizona Department of Corrections. She started her sentence in the complex's maximum security Lumley unit, but has since been downgraded to the medium security level. This is one of the few stories that, while it, it's not necessarily a happy ending, it, it kind of is because the bad guy or bad girl was found guilty and she will spend the rest of her life in jail because of the horrible things that she's done. Now, I've got one more story for you guys today and it comes from yourghoststories.com. As always, I will be reading from the author's perspective. This took place in the late 1950s. The basement of my aunt and uncle's house where they lived until they built a house onto the top of the basement. It was large, but had very little lighting in it, which most of the bulbs to the lighting and the ceiling were taken out, and only three worked. One by the steps, the bathroom, and the largest room. The lights were turned on by pull strings. As children, we were too short to be able to reach the string to turn on the light. The basement had many small windows around it, but none of them opened. The daytime, playing in the basement, one could see okay, with the many windows around it, but at nighttime, it was very dark. My younger sister and I had to spend all of our summers when out of school at my aunt's house. My cousin Maxie had a nice-sized big bedroom. It had, in it was lots of stuffed animals and these ugly clowns. I would often beg her to put them away while my sister and I was staying in her room to sleep at night. She would tell me that I was a crybaby just wanting to go home before I was supposed to. No matter how much I asked my mom why we had to be there every summer, I never did get an answer to those many questions. One night, shortly after my sister and I were there at my aunt's house, my sister woke up and had to go to the bathroom. We had to get up and walk past the shelf where the clowns were, down many steps to the dark basement where the bathroom was. I held onto my sister's hand as we went down the stairs, only a light to show us down the steps. We had to cross over to the other side of the basement to the bathroom in the dark. We made it to the bathroom, but while in there, we could hear laughing. My sister is hanging onto my hand really tight. I'm trying to be brave. I left the light on in the bathroom as it showed us to the steps instead of walking in total darkness. We climbed all the steps and ran back to our cousin's room. On her shelf, where the clowns were, one was looking right at us and laughing. We got into bed and covered our heads. My cousin Maxie woke up and wondered why the bedroom light was on. We told her that ugly clown was looking at us and was laughing. She got up and she walked over to the clown 
took it off the shelf and threw it onto my sister and I, making us scream so loudly that our aunt came into the room to see what was the matter. We told her of the laughing clown. So our aunt took the clown out of the room, turned off the light. I'm looking at the shelf in semi-darkness, and I can hear that clown laughing again. I just covered my head up, and I got close to my sleeping little sister. Some days went by, and nothing else happened. Maxie and my sister and I went to the basement to play one rainy day, and I said, Did you hear that? Maxie tells me she heard nothing. I said, It's that ugly clown again. It's laughing. She told me that I was lying. I asked her what her mom did with the clown. Maxie said that she did not know. She said that she has had those clowns in her room for years, and she has never seen or heard anything. A while later, while we were outside playing, Maxie, my sister, and I, we went to go around the corner of the house when I stopped abruptly. I came face to face with that clown. My scream was heard across the street. The lady from across the street came over, and so did our aunt from inside the house. Maxie ran inside. I told my aunt and the lady across the street about the ugly laughing clown. They made me think that I was hearing and seeing things, and that all would be okay. Sometime later, I was in the basement going to the bathroom with my little sister. We had the door closed. We could hear Maxie screaming and banging on the door to get in. We let her in and the lights went out. I could hear Maxie scream, my little sister crying for our mom, and the laughing of the clown. It got nearer and nearer to us. It drowned out the crying and the screaming in the bathroom. My uncle came into the basement to see what was going on. He turned on the light by the stairs. His daughter flung herself into her daddy's arms, still screaming. Then she said, I was going to come down here and scare the crybabies. When I got down here near them, I saw the clown from my shelf looking mean and laughing. Our uncle took us all upstairs to their room. See, he said, the clown is still there, pointing toward a closet in his bedroom. We all looked and we didn't see any clown in there. We went to Maxie's room, and there sat that ugly, laughing clown. Our uncle asked his wife if she put it back in her bedroom. She had not, yet it was still there. My aunt took all the clowns off the shelf and burnt them, told us that we have no more problems with them again. My sister and I went home. We told our mom that we were not going back to that house again. Something was wrong in that house. We never did have to go back again. I seen Maxie about three years ago at a wedding, and I asked her, Do you remember those clowns that you used to have when we were young? Her face turned white. She dropped her glass, which held her drink. She told me, Never mention those clowns again, or any clown to her. I learned from Maxie's sister that Maxie's room was closed up and locked, that Maxie and her shared a bedroom. When they moved from that house, Maxie's stuff that was in the room stayed with the house, still with a lock on the door. I am now in my 50s, and to this day, I am still afraid of clowns. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us.
Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Also, don't forget to share with friends and family that enjoy this kind of content. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show through Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.